Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now to Revelation chapter 22. And we're going to be looking at the last part of the book, not only the book of the Revelation, but also the final chapter of God's Word. So verse 6 is where we'll begin reading this morning, and I'll read all the way through the chapter, and I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll study it together. John writes, Revelation 22 and verse 6, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book, of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Father, as we come to the end of this study and we come to the end of this book and we come to the end of your, your Bible that you have given to us, we are we're thankful for your word. We're thankful that you haven't left us in this world without a witness. We're, we're thankful that you haven't withheld the revelation of yourself to us. You've made known your glory and your holiness and your truth and your righteous standard and your, uh, your warnings and your promises. And in all of those things, you have also shown us a picture of ourselves, that we are your creation, and yet we are sinful. 
We have rebelled against you, and we are desperately in need of a Savior. And in your love and in your mercy and according to your plan, you sent that Savior, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to to earth to live for us and to die in our place. And you raised him from the dead to give not only credence to everything he said and everything he did, but also to give us the hope that resurrection is coming for all those who trust in him. And the promises contained in this book are for those who believe. And this morning as we come as believers in Christ, we pray that these promises would comfort us and encourage us. But Lord, I trust that there are those among us today who aren't trusting in you. And so I pray that your words would afflict their hearts appropriately, that you would accomplish salvation in their hearts this morning through the preaching of your word. That's my prayer. So accomplish your purpose, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was October the 3rd, it was 2021, just a few years ago when we started studying this revelation. And 61 sermons later, we finally come to the end of the book and we've learned some amazing truths along the way. We've learned, as though we didn't already know this, but we have learned in the study of this book that to be a Christian in this world is going to be a challenge for us. But we've also learned that those who endure to the end, those who stay faithful along the way, Christ is going to motivate us with his promises that those who endure to the end will be saved and receive the promises of God. We've seen that every generation of Christians from those in the very first century, the first days of Jesus, all the way until you know, our own time, and even to those who will see his return, we will all face tribulations, persecutions, trials, and temptations. But Jesus promises that he has a purpose in all of those things for us. They are, they are not happening apart from his purpose and plan. And if we endure to the end, we will reign with him in the new heavens and the new earth. We've learned along the way that the numbers in this book mean more than we think. We've learned that the visions in this book have a depth to them that's pretty hard to grasp at times. We've learned that this book is more tied, I hope you've learned this, that this book is more tied to the Old Testament prophets than we originally thought was possible. We've also learned that we have enemies in this world, real enemies, A dragon and a beast and a false prophet and those who follow those. But Jesus has a plan for them as well. He has a plan for us. It's a glorious plan and it involves a future that we can hardly imagine. We've learned through all of this study that there's a throne at the center of the universe. And God and the Lamb sit upon that throne, and from that throne, they rule over everything in creation, and they order everything according to the counsel of their will, and God has given us a glimpse in all of this book of the spiritual realities that are playing out in our midst. He's even allowed us to see the end and what comes after. I mean, this has been an amazing study. And in Revelation 22, actually last week in Revelation 22 verses 1 through 5, the visions come to an end. The, the, the heavenly visions are over. And what we're reading or what I just read for you is the conclusion to the book. And it seems kind of disconnected. It seems a little bit disjointed. You've got this person talking and then this person talking and then this blessing and then this warning. It just seems to be a a mishmash of all kinds of different things. It seems a bit jumbled up. 
But if you look at it a little bit more closely, you will see that there are a series of things that are stated here. There are a series of acknowledgments, and a series of blessings, and a series of warnings, and a series of instructions, and a series of promises. And, as is true to form in the Revelation, they all form a certain pattern. In other words, there are three of each of them. There are three witnesses. There are three instructions. There are three promises. There are three invitations. And there are three warnings. I mean, you would expect for this book to close with some number stuff, right? If you've been with us, then you understand. So let's look at these five series of threes as we close down the book. Let's look first at the three witnesses. The three witnesses. Now, the first witness, you almost need to look all the way back up to verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. And that same angel is speaking in verse 6. And it's the same angel that came out in chapter 21 to show the final vision to John. This is the angel that's been helping John along the way. He guided him through that vision of the new Jerusalem. Here at the very end, that same angel speaks up. And that angel testifies to the genuineness of the visions that John has seen and to the testimony of the entire book. And here's what the angel says to us. This testimony is trustworthy and true. And the reason that this testimony is trustworthy and true is that God is the author of all that John has seen and all that John has heard. The same God that worked in the Old Testament prophets to reveal the promises and the the prophecies that God had given to man, the same God who worked in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, to reveal truths to the, the, the apostles, that same God has sent his messenger and has revealed this message to John about what was and is and is to come. In other words, the angel serves as the first witness testifying that God is the author of the book that we've been studying, and because God is the author, you can trust that everything is true contained within this book. Now, there's another witness. The second witness is the Lord, and you see that in verse 7. In verse 7, we read this, and behold, I am coming soon. And he says, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Now, of course, the one speaking here is Jesus himself. He even identifies himself a little bit later as Jesus. But when he, he states, I am coming soon, it's quite clear. Well, it's not exactly clear that it's Jesus. There's a, a little bit of confusion among scholars. Some would say that this is the angel quoting Jesus. I just kind of cut out the middleman there. I think this is Jesus speaking. I credit these words to Jesus. And the reason that I do that is because throughout the Revelation, when you see a beatitude, are y'all familiar with that word beatitude? The beatitudes are those statements of blessings, those statements that start out with blessed be whatever, right? Jesus has a series of beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. And if you can receive it, there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And every time we see one of those beatitudes, one of those comments about blessing, it's either coming from Jesus, it's coming from God on the throne, or it's coming from a voice from heaven. So when I see, I am coming soon, blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy, I attribute that to the Lord. This is Jesus speaking here. And it is the sixth of the Beatitudes. There's another one a little bit later down in verse 14. We see the seventh and final blessing, and it shouldn't surprise us that we see seven 
blessings in the book. But notice that this blessing comes with the promise that those who keep the words of the prophecy of this book, those are the ones who will be blessed. This is what Jesus is telling us. Not only does the angel tell us that the, that the words of this, prom- this, this prophecy are trustworthy and true, but Jesus says not, you shouldn't just understand it to be true and then put it on your shelf over there. You should keep these words. And what does it mean to keep the words of the prophecy of this book? Well, it means, quite literally, it's a picturesque term. It means to take this truth into our custody. It's not just something we stick in our back pocket. It's not just something that we have an app on our phone that we can find occasionally. And it's, it's not just something that we keep on the shelf to collect dust. And when someone asks us, do we have a Bible? We say, yes, we got that nice one over there. No, this is something that is to be opened and read and studied and meditated upon and memorized and declared. That's what it means to keep the words of the prophecy of this book. It means to take these truths into our custody, allowing them to shape our thoughts and our emotions and our actions. Jesus promises a blessing to those who take this book to heart, who are prepared for what it reveals, and who fix our hope on its promises. So the first witness is the angel, the second witness is Jesus, and then there's the third witness, and it's the apostle. Look in verse 8. John chimes in and he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. John confirms he was the human author who saw and heard the visions and the voices. John wrote these things down because he was instructed to do that. You remember all the way back in Revelation 1? When Jesus revealed himself, John saw this vision of Jesus, and then Jesus spoke to John. He says this in Revelation 1 and verse 17. He says, fear not, I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. John identified himself at the beginning of the book as a bond slave of Christ. He saw this amazing vision, but he doesn't communicate, oh, by the way, put me on a pedestal. I'm the vision guy. No, he says, I'm a bond slave. I'm a servant of Christ. And he's the one who is sharing in our tribulations, sharing in the kingdom, sharing in the patient endurance, waiting on the Lord to come. That's what he he told us about himself. But now he tells us, and all the things that God showed me, all the things that I saw, all the things that I heard, I wrote them down faithfully for you. And all three of these witnesses, the angel and the Lord and the apostle, they combine to give full divine credibility to this book. And not just the book of Revelation, but all of Scripture. God the Father is the ultimate author, and he has chosen to reveal these things through his servants. Specifically, in this case, he revealed his, uh, his revelation to the Son, to Jesus, and Jesus revealed it through the messengers and the angels. He revealed it to John. John wrote those things down, and God has preserved it for us today. So when we read this word, we know that this is God speaking to us. These three witnesses speak And they confirm that the book that we've been reading, the book that we've been studying, it is the authentic Word of God. But that's just the beginning. We see three witnesses, but we also see three instructions or three commands. Three times in this conclusion, we're given the instructions specifically on how we are to handle the book. 
Not only are we to understand that it's true, but we're to handle it in a very specific way. The first is in verse 7, which we've already read, this promise from Jesus that we are to keep the words of the book, take it into our custody, and allow it to guide our thoughts and our actions and our lives. In verse 10, if you see, we are, we are instructed not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. And then in verse 18, we're instructed not to add to nor take away from the words of this book. All of these instructions, all of these commands have to do with how we handle the prophecy, how we handle the word of God. To keep the words of this book is, like I mentioned earlier, is to take these things into our custody, allowing it to shape our lives. In other words, this book and all of Scripture should be the very foundation upon which we grasp reality to determine what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. In our consumer-driven world of today, it's easy for us to determine how much we appreciate a gift When's the last time you got a series of gifts? Here's how we can determine whether or not we really appreciate that gift. When you get all those gifts and you, you sift through them and you think about, well, which ones am I going to keep and which ones am I going to return? Jesus is saying, don't return this one. Don't give this one back. Don't set this one aside. Don't diminish its purpose and value. Keep this gift close to your heart, put its words in your mind, and live by them and fix your hope on its promises. Keep the words of this book. But there's another instruction, and that second one is stated in the negative. Verse 10, it says, do not seal up the words of this book. Now, we can kind of get our minds around the, you know, keep this book, but what does that mean? What is, as you might expect, there's an Old Testament reference here. You may remember this, you may not. Back when the prophet Daniel was given a vision about what is to come, Daniel was told to seal up the words of his prophecy until the time comes for it to be revealed. And as you know, we've been studying this, there's so much of the revelation is a reflection of what what was given to Daniel. Daniel was told to seal up his prophecy. In other words, the time hadn't come for it to be fully revealed and fully explained and fully understood. So Daniel was to seal it up and keep it hidden and secure until the appropriate time. And the Lord is coming back at the end and he's telling us, he's telling John, don't, don't seal this one up. The time has come to reveal it all. The time has come to let the words of this book out. The time has come for us to proclaim this truth far and wide. Do not seal it up, but declare it, preach it, and make known what is to come. You see, God wants the world to hear this, but He also wants His church to hear this especially, so that we can be prepared by it. Now, when I began to think through preaching this book, it was not a decision that was made lightly, as you might imagine. I was firmly aware, sharply aware, that preaching through this book had a potential to cause some division and some tension and some healthy discussions, right? I understood that. So I studied it long before we began to preach it, and we talked about it as elders. And the reason that, that we know that about this book is that this book has, it holds a special place in our hearts, and because of that, we've become very attached specifically to those who've taught it to us before, the books we've read about it, and, and, and our own interpretation of it. It helps us to understand things a specific way. 
every verse of this book has been studied and debated and interpreted and placed within a theological paradigm, and most often that theological paradigm is completely different from the one next to it. And we all know that the way we handle this book has the potential to cause great division. And my goal has not been to force my interpretive paradigm down your throats. You may not you may think, well, yeah, that's what you've done, but that, that has not been my intention at all. In fact, that's why I waited until we got to chapter 20 to even tell you what my position was. My goal has been to teach you how I read and understand this book and why I interpret it the way that I do. My goal has been to show you the importance of the numbers beyond just the fact that it's the number seven. Why do we see the number seven 52 times in the book? Well, there's a purpose for that. I wanted to draw your attention to the patterns and the repetitions and try to make sense out of those things. I wanted to make connection to the Old Testament prophets so that we understand that this book doesn't stand alone. It stands on the foundation of what has come before it. I wanted you to be able to understand and grasp the message of this book. But like verse 18 tells us, along the way, all of us should have this understanding. We don't add to nor do we take away from the book. We don't just put our own little spin on it. We don't just decide that we're going to elevate these passages and limit these passages. Each of us, myself included, should do our best to study it, to understand it, to interpret it in light of Scripture, declare it to others, and then live faithfully in response to it. We don't pick and choose which parts we're going to accept and which parts we're going to reject, which means those comforting parts about Christ wiping away the tears from our eyes, we need to hold on to those. But those challenging portions about judgment over and over and over, the judgment that is coming against those who've rejected the Son of God, we proclaim that too. And even though it's been challenging, it's true. We let this word speak to our hearts and to those around us. And here's where we are. By God's grace, we've made it through this book without division, without great controversy, We've had few discussions, and that's okay. But I trust and I hope that we all have a much deeper understanding of the book, not of my paradigm, but of the book than we had before. And here's what we do according to these instructions and commands. Don't seal that up. Don't hide it away. Don't diminish parts and elevate others. Don't be so eager to argue your theological paradigm, but let all the words of this book spread far and wide. Share these, declare these, teach the words of this book, and hold to them as well. That's what the instruction is. We have three witnesses, we have three sets of instructions, but we also have three promises contained in this conclusion. And all three of these promises come from Jesus. They are in verse 7, which is the promise we've already learned, the promise that he is coming soon. And then in verse 12, we see that again. And then in verse 20, we see it again. Jesus makes the same promise three different times. Behold, I am coming soon. And when he comes, he will bring with him a blessing to those who have kept his word and stayed faithful to the gospel. And by the way, Cody mentioned that in our, in our prayer, our time earlier of scripture reading and confession. Uh, that's been a theme throughout the revelation. 
Jesus says, if you will endure, if you will conquer, if you will hold fast to the truth until the end, he's given us these promises. If you make it through the tribulation and you hold fast, you'll receive the crown of life. If you make it through and you hold fast, you will have a seat upon his throne. We'll have a share in the throne of God. If you make it through, he'll wipe away our tears. If you make it through, he will usher us into a new heaven and new earth. That's been the promise all along. And we understand something because we know just how desperately we need the grace of God. We know that it's only by grace that we are saved and we need God's sustaining grace to get us to the end. We're not going to white knuckle our way to to eternity. We are going to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, understanding that it is God who is working in us to accomplish his good purpose and bring us to the end. So it's a both and proposition, but this is one of the promises that Jesus gives, that he will bring blessing to those who endure to the end. In verse 12, the promise of Jesus comes, and it's coupled with something else. It's coupled with the promise of judgment that is coming with him. Look at verse 12. He says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. So for the believer who endures in faith until the end, there is the the promise of blessing. But for the unbeliever, the coming of Christ will bring and usher in judgment. That's what recompense means. Recompense, it's it's a, a term that it indicates making amends. It's this idea of Uh, Someone has suffered loss, and so they're going to be paid back for it. It's like an accounting term. It carries the idea of payment coming due. And what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about the, the, the payment that we are due because of our sin, for the wages of sin is death, right? And for the unbeliever who hasn't found their hope in Christ and sheltered under his sanctifying love, for for the unbeliever, the judgment of God is coming. The due will be called out. The payment will be required. The unbelievers in this world are set to receive what they deserve. And just to remind you of some of the language we've seen along the way, the Scriptures tell us that they will drink the cup of God's wrath that has been stored up for them. Christ is the divine judge, and when He comes, He will repay each one for what they are due. Everyone's sin, every single one of the crimes against the church in persecution, every instance of corruption on the part of world leaders will be paid back in full. When Jesus comes, the world will face the punishment for every single sin that it has committed. There is no sin, great or small, that will go unpunished. Every sinful thought Action and deed will be paid in full. That's how thorough the divine justice of God is and will be. And this should be enough to make every worldly person shudder at the thought of trying to imagine the vastness of your sins. You know those games you play? I was trying to think of an illustration that might help. You know those games that we play or we did when we were kids where you know, you come into this thing, maybe it's a school or maybe it's vacation Bible school and there's this big glass jar there and it's filled with gumballs and you're supposed to guess how many gumballs are in the jar and if you can guess how many gumballs are in the jar, you win a prize, you know, that kind of thing. Or maybe it's not, it's, maybe it's jelly beans or whatever the case may be. Well, let's do, a, let's do an experiment. Let's do a thought experiment. What if we were trying to guess 
how many sins we've committed in a lifetime. I'll just take myself as an example. And let's, let's just do the math on this. And let's be very conservative about this. Let's, let's say conservatively that we, you know, I can account for one sin a day every day of my life. You know, one day I lied. One day I took something that didn't belong to me. You know, one day I, you know, coveted my neighbor's toy or whatever it might have been. Let's say I I can account for one sin every day of my life. I'm 46 years old. And according to that mathematic equation, I've committed uh, 16,400 sins. But let me just go ahead and admit to you, that's ridiculously conservative. I've, I've committed far more sins than that. But even if I've committed two sins a day, well, you're looking at 33,000 sins. Well, well, but my high school years and my college years, it was probably more like three to five a day. Right? So the jar just keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And I'm only thinking about the sins where I've transgressed the boundary. What about the things I failed to do? Here's the point. I have sinned time without number. I've sinned in thought, in word, in deed, and in action. And I couldn't even begin to put a mathematical equation together. And this is not just true for me. This is true for all of us. The truth is, if we understand the thoroughness of God's law and the thoroughness of God's holiness and just how deeply sinful we are, then we could, we're sinning every moment. And we are far more sinful than we would care to admit. And yet, the gospel tells us that at the same time, we are far, far more loved than we could ever imagine. Because in Christ, all of those sins, all of the the guilt, all of the payment required, everything was paid in full on the cross. And not just for me and my 175,000 sins I've committed, but for all of his people. That's what Christ was doing on the cross. Bearing the sins of his people. Bearing the sins of all those who believe. Atoning for the sins of his saints so that we can say on the other end that it has been paid in full. If you believe the Word of God, if you put your hope in Jesus Christ as the Son of God who died on the cross to pay the full penalty of your sins, then you can be saved from the judgment that is to come. To be saved, that's a language we don't often use, but I'm a good Baptist boy. I grew up using that word. What does it mean to be saved? Well, it's actually a biblical term. To be saved means there's no more payment required. That recompense that God is bringing against those who have rejected Him, that recompense, that payment, has already been made in full for those who trust in Him. And that means that even our sins, every one, all of those thoughts and deeds and actions and inactions that we can't number, those were paid for as well. That's why we can come confidently to the throne of grace. To be saved means there's no more payment required from your account. It means that Jesus paid it all. Therefore, all to Him we owe. Your sin, my sin, our sin had left a crimson stain. But what did He do? He washed it white as snow. 
That's the beauty of the gospel. That's what makes the gospel good news. And this means that when he comes, you and I as believers in Christ will not be an object of his wrath, but an object of his love. This means that instead of receiving judgment that we deserve from Jesus, we will receive the grace from Jesus that we did not earn. And that's our hope. That's the believer's hope today. And if you're here and you've not put your hope and trust in Christ, that's the message of the gospel to you. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to establish your peak performance in holiness. You don't have to do X, Y, and Z so that God will love you. He has displayed His love, and all you must do is receive it with the empty hands of faith. And all of these promises and all of these blessings are yours. And that might seem too good to be true. That's why we call it grace. This means... That the promise of Christ coming can be something that we don't fear, but something that we long to see. And we don't really have to wait until that day comes. The scriptures actually give us an indication that we can receive this and embrace this and understand this and rejoice in this right now. Here's the thing. Note that when Jesus speaks and says, I am coming, you can't really see this in, in the English, but it's the present progressive tense. He says, behold, I am coming. It's like this progressive, long, drawn out. He doesn't say he will come. He deliberately uses this tense. And he's basically saying, I'm already on the way. And for for us, we can receive that. We can understand that. We can rejoice in that. We can long for that day to come and understand that it's just a moment away. So friends, don't harden your hearts to the love of Christ. But seek his forgiveness and his grace today. Respond to his invitation. That's the next thing. So we've seen three witnesses, three instructions, three promises. Now let's look at three invitations that we should accept. And they they come from the verses that we've already seen. Verse 7, the first invitation to receive the blessing from God comes to those who keep the words of this book. The second invitation is in verse 14, where Jesus says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now this, this phrase, this is a, this is a common biblical phrase. Wash their robes. What is that all about? Well, in chapter 7, in verse 14, this is a callback to that verse. We learn that the saints of God who came out of the great tribulation, those who endured the tribulation of this life to come into the presence of God at the end, that those saints, the language is that they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now think about that for just a second. Washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This is a very strange idea. I mean, when's the last time you went to the supermarket to get laundry detergent and you went to the the laundry detergent aisle and you had to stop someone and say, by the way, where's the blood? I need the blood so that I can wash my garments white. That's not what blood does. That's not how we get garments white. That's an odd idea. Where is that coming from? Well, it's not supposed to be this literal thing. It's symbolic, right? We've been studying this. We know this. It's a symbolic idea. And its symbolism is seen throughout the Scriptures, not just here in the Revelation. When Adam and Eve sinned 
and disobeyed God in the garden. They ate the forbidden fruit. Their days of walking with God were over. They couldn't walk with God in the cool of the day anymore. Their sinful rebellion put them out of fellowship with God. We, we talk about the language of them being exiled from the garden and from the presence of God. And from that point forward, fellowship with God was possible, but it could only happen on God's terms. It could only happen according to his rules. And his rules required a sacrifice. Even Adam and Eve uh, in order to be clothed, an animal had to die in the garden before they left. And that symbolizes our need for our sinful shame to be covered by the blood of another. And then you just continue on throughout the scriptures. The blood of sacrifice is made to cover the sins of God's people. The, the biblical language is atone for. There's a mercy seat and, and our sins are there and the blood comes to wash those things away. And it's an odd idea, but it's a symbolic notion that our relationship to God requires that blood be spilt to cover the shame of our sins. But that system was flawed. That system was flawed because day by day, year after year, more sacrifices had to be made. The, the Bible actually even says that. Every day, every month, every year, more and more sacrifices had to be made because the sacrifice of bulls and goats and rams was not sufficient to completely atone for our sins because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We needed blood to be shed, but we needed better blood. We needed a better and more perfect blood that could cleanse us once and for all. And that's where Jesus enters the story. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12, it says this, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of His own blood. And thus has secured an eternal redemption. That's the picture we have here. When we turn from our sin and we trust in Christ as Savior and Lord, the symbolic application is that His blood cleanses our soul from sin. This cleansing is not something we earn. It's not something we, we can purchase. It's something we must accept by faith. And, and it's those who have had their garments washed clean by the blood of the Lamb who can enter into the blessings that He promises. But we must feel our need of it. In verse 17, Jesus says to the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. We sing this song and it says this, the only fitness he requires is to fill your need of him. And so if you're thirsty for the forgiveness of sins, come. If you long to enter heaven by the gate that God has opened to you, Come, by faith, the death of Jesus purifies us so that we are now cleansed from sin and have access to God. That's what he's saying here. And that's the promise that he's holding out to us. So we've heard from three witnesses. We've heeded the three instructions. We've studied the three promises and we've considered the three invitations. The last thing is we see three warnings. Three warnings we must avoid. And the first warning is in verse 9. When the angel rebukes John for falling down at his feet in a posture of worship. Now this is not the first time this happened. This happened back over in, verse, uh, in chapter 20 uh, when 
John saw this angel, and the angel began to do, you know, explain visions, and John fell down at his feet to worship him, and the angel rebuked him and said, don't do that. And we shouldn't be too hard on John. When's the last time you saw an angel revealed? I mean, just about every time we ever see this in the Scripture, the, the one who sees the angel falls down at the angel's feet in a posture of fear. So we shouldn't be too hard on John. But there's a message here. And the reason it's repeated is so that we get that message. The, the message is this. Don't worship the messenger. Worship the God who is working all things for your good. Don't worship the messenger. The second warning is in verse 12 where Jesus warns that his coming will mean judgment for those who have not received the forgiveness of Christ in the gospel. So we've already talked about that one. And then the third warning is in verse 18 where Jesus says that anyone who takes away from or adds to the testimony of God's word, they will have no share in the tree of life or the holy city. Friends, this is really important for us. It's really important for you as individuals, but it's incredibly important for us as a church, especially in a culture that's saying, no, 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 you shouldn't hold on to those passages anymore. No, our culture has passed them by. No, 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 you shouldn't hold on to those principles anymore. We, we understand better than God did. We don't pick and choose which passages of Scripture to believe and which to reject. Well, well actually, we do that all the time. But Jesus is very adamant that when we do that, we are forfeiting the blessings of the kingdom. What we're doing in that moment is we're becoming the arbiter of what is true and what is not. We're doing the exact same thing that Satan tempted Adam and Eve to do in the garden when he says, uh, will you really die? Isn't it that just God has held something back from you? He's, he's withholding something from you. And if you'll just trust what I say rather than what God says, you can have all of these blessings. And what happens there? They decided to go their own way. Adam and Eve decided to determine for themselves what is true and what is not. And they usher the world into sin. And that same sin is still affecting us today. When, when you say, well, I know God's word says this, but I'm going to do this. Guess what you just did? You just followed the serpent's temptation. When you say, yes, I understand that Jesus commands this, but you know what? He's just going to have to forgive me because I'm going here. Guess what you've done? You've taken away from the prophecy of this book and you've determined I'm going to trust this rather than that. We do this all the time. And Jesus says when we do this, we're not holding to biblical faithfulness. We're not doing what God has commanded. We're forfeiting the promises and blessings of God. God has given us his word so that we can be sanctified in it. He has given us his truth so that we can be set free by it. His word is a lamp unto our feet and a light for our path. His word is milk for young Christians and it's meat for the mature. His word is true, though every other man is a liar. And his word will stand forever, even when the grass withers and the flowers fade. And we are to receive his word and read His Word, and study His Word, and take it into our custody, allowing it to change our minds, and our lives, and our world. Not just determine, well, I like this, so I'm going to hold this, but I don't like that, so I'm going to reject it. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he says this, All these things have been written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the world are come. That's 1 Corinthians 10. And 11. So here's a summary of those warnings. 
Don't idolize the messengers of God. And he's not just talking about angelic messengers. I'm talking about myself. Any pastor that you might put on a pedestal, look, I'm just a, I'm just a, a sinful, broken man in need of God's grace, just like you. That's it. And every other man who stood in this sacred desk to proclaim God's word, we all have clay feet. Right, Russ? We're just broken men, dependent upon God's grace every moment of every day. And sometimes I get it wrong. I'll confess that. And sometimes the answer is, I don't know. Don't put me on a pedestal. Don't idolize the messenger. Worship the God who is working all things for your good. Hold me accountable, but don't put me on a pedestal. The second is, don't reject the Son of God. Don't reject the salvation that He brings, and don't alter the message of God, because to do any of these things is to forfeit the blessing that God wants to give to His children. So that's what this conclusion holds. A series of threes, or at least that's the way I see it. So what can we take away? A couple of things. I mean, all of that is pretty, you know, application-driven, but let me summarize it even further. The emphasis in the end of this book is to trust and uphold and to proclaim the Word of God. It's trustworthy and true because it's come from God Himself. It has been attested by angelic messengers. It has been recorded by our brother in the faith, and it has been preserved by God for us today. Don't change it. Don't put it on a shelf. Keep it and let it shape your heart, your thinking, your actions, and your life. But also declare it faithfully and live by it. That's what we're to do. Trust and uphold and proclaim the word. Number two, don't worship the messenger. Worship the God who is working all things for our good. All of these amazing visions, all of these things that we've seen along the way have been revealed for our edification, for our understanding, and for us to be able to live faithfully. Not for us to idolize the message itself or idolize the messenger, but to be thankful for the God who is accomplishing His purpose in our lives even now. So the messengers of God, whether they be angelic or human, or they're merely servants. The one who deserves our worship is God alone. He's revealed Himself to us. He's made known to us His promises. He's made known to us our sin, and His Word is to serve as a guide for us. He sent His Son to be the sacrifice for our sins that we need, and He's promised that the dark days that He's revealed here, He's going to get us through those because He's going to sustain us through everything this world can throw at us. And He's promised that even those hard things He's working for our good, He's going to bring us through them both body and soul, into the eternal rest of heaven. He deserves our worship, no one else. Number three, wash your robes in the grace of Christ's love. Wash your robes in the grace of Christ's love. If you're a believer, that means remember the love that God has shown to you and renew your hope and trust in it. If you're not a believer, this is my plea. Come to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and the hope and promise that this book holds out to you. There is no hope apart from Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No man comes to the Father but by Him. To be saved will will require you to abandon the self-salvation project that you've been on. You cannot save yourself in God's eyes. You must come to Him and embrace Christ with the empty hands of faith. And if you do, these promises are yours just as much as they are ours. 
So wash your robes in the grace of Christ's love. And then lastly, long for his return. Now, this is something that preachers do occasionally. I said there were three witnesses. There's actually more than three witnesses. There's a fourth witness. And the fourth witness is the spirit and the bride. And the bride is the church. And what do they say? Come. Jesus promised that he is coming and the spirit and the bride respond with that longing, that desire. Come, Lord Jesus. This is our longing. This is our hope that Christ will come and usher in all of these glorious promises revealed in this book. And that should be our heart as well. Longing, desiring, even crying out for Christ to return. So let me pray for us and we'll begin to do that. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time of studying the revelation. Thank you for preserving our unity and our joy as a body in the midst of this. Thank you for teaching us what you've taught us. Thank you for reminding us of your grace week in and week out. Thank you for showing us the the hard truth about living for you in this dark and sinful world. But thank you immensely for giving us a picture of the end so that we can have hope that goes beyond the pain, so that we can have confidence that goes beyond the trial. We can know that you are accomplishing all things for the good of your people. And so, Lord... I pray that as we move on in faith as a body, that you would continue to let these truths, these words, these prophecies, and these promises bear their weight on our hearts and souls and motivate us to live faithfully until the end. And we say together, come Lord Jesus, because we long to see you face to face. Lord, we thank you for this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.